Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I want to talk to you this morning about good grief. Good grief. Romans chapter 9. Anybody use that phrase? Good grief. If you grew up, uh, you know, in a certain decade, we won't mention, but you probably watched the Peanuts uh, with Charlie Brown, and that was one of the popular phrases was, good grief, Charlie Brown, or good grief. And uh, any, anybody remember that show? All right, cool. Uh, good grief. Where does that come from? I looked it up, and if you go back into the, uh, some of the dictionaries and uh, encyclopedias, that phrase uh, goes way back, but especially in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, it was a very popular phrase, but it was really came from the expression, good God or, or good Lord. Uh, some of us, maybe you had a, a great aunt or uncle used to say, good golly or good gravy. Everybody likes gravy. Good gravy or good gracious. Uh, but what happened was in the early 1900s, uh, when someone would say, good Lord or good, good God, it was a little edgy. Can you imagine? A little edgy back in the early 1900s, so they started using the phrase, good grief. They took out the God part, and they put in the grief part. I thought that was a little interesting, how God got replaced with grief. But good grief, good grief, Charlie Brown. I want to talk to you about good grief. What is good grief? In that phrase, uh, often when someone says that, it means that, what, an irritation or, or an exclamation of something that happened or uh, something that uh, is, you know, discouraging to you. It's like, man, that's, that's a lot of work. Good grief. Or, man, I can't believe they did that. Good grief or whatever. So, and think about this with Christians today. Sometimes that is so true that God gets replaced with grief. I look at our, our world. I see all the things around here. Uh, we can think about all the things that are wrong in the world, especially in our country today. And all those opportunities that perhaps could be God moments, often in this day and age to this church, I feel, American church today, become moments of grief. Let me explain. For instance, this is often true in some Christians. What might be an opportunity in your life for God's goodness to shine is sometimes an irritation. For instance, we have a country that's divided between Democrat and Republican. We've got conservative versus liberal. We've got black versus white. We've got native versus foreigner. And even in this day with all the technology, we've got old versus young or old versus new. Uh, and often these divisions can come into the church so we can get frustrated, whether it be with those young people uh, and they don't understand culture and how it should be in their worldview, or we don't understand the other side of the political aisle and how can they vote that way or believe that way. And we bring that into the church. And then the same is true for in our workplace, we maybe are around heathen type people. And we're like, how can you have a worldview like that? How can you even think that way? How can you even believe that way? And what could be a God opportunity for us as Christians often becomes more of an irritation. And we get around all the worldly people in our midst and we say, good grief. I want to talk to you this morning about evangelism, and do we as Christians complain more about lost people than we pray for them? Are there people in my life that irritate me more, that I complain about more than I pray for them? Do I watch the news in the world around me, and I complain about it, and I post about it, and I speak ill of it more 
then I pray for it. Do we have God's heart for the world today? Are we more frustrated and irritated with the world of sinners than we are amazed by the goodness of God? Am I an irritated Christian or am I an interceding Christian? You'll intercede and I will intercede for someone that I care about most of all. And for instance, if your child is sick and, and your child has a sickness in their life and they're laying there coughing or, you know, they uh, throwing up or whatever and they get a fever, how many parents wouldn't say, man, I would gladly take that illness off of my child and take it upon myself. Why? Because you love them unconditionally. And we're going to talk about that love because do you and I as Christians have that kind of love for a lost and dying world, for a sick, hurting, broken generation of people, young and old, this generation that's alive today, that are out there and, and it's so irritating and it's so, under, and, and, and it's so unbelievable where we are as a country, as a world. But am I so irritated that I could not see the goodness of God? Would I, do I have a love that I would willingly take that upon myself, that they might be healed. When's the last time God shared his heart with you for a sick and dying world? And do I weep for those that are headed to destruction? And would I die for this generation? Those are very heavy questions, and maybe you're not ready to answer them. And I've been struggling with them all week, all month. God, would I die for this generation of lost people? Would I die for this generation of lost people? I want to talk to you about three things real quick. God's grief, Christ's curse, and my mission. God's grief, Christ's curse, and my mission. Because God's grief is good grief. God's grief is good grief. Look with me in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Let me give you the background. Okay, so in Romans chapter 9, the nation of Israel has enjoyed in their history the amazing divine presence of God. They have seen the Shekinah glory tangible in their midst, fire fall from heaven, cloud by day. They have seen wondrous things. They have heard uh, the beauty of God's holiness through the Psalms and the glory of His habitation. And, and they've seen the, the sacrifices that demonstrate what God would do in the future. And prophet after prophet has come and kings have come and and they use all of this, and God begins to bless this nation. And He chooses them uniquely above all nations. But yet, these, these privileges was not just for this nation itself, uh, but for the blessing of the world. But instead, in their history, Israel has thought that God's blessings were for their comfort uh, and their prosperity. So they reject Jesus Messiah and Paul says, hey, they had all these religious rules and laws, but they did not have faith. They had zealous uh, things for the law, but they did not have zealous things for the heart of God. They they did not find what he was looking uh, for in themselves and and they refused to believe God's good news killed their own Messiah. And Paul says in Romans, some of them even became enemies of the cross. Look in Romans 9, but then what does Paul say about them? Romans 9, verse 1, he says, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. Somebody say sorrow. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed 
separated for Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is he saying there? Look at that first part in verse 1. He says, my conscience testifies in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? He says, my understanding, my emotion, my, my internal person, the me that's on the inside, it agrees with this. Man, I, I, I'm from, he says, I'm from Israel. These are my families. These are some of my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. You know, for us, I'm from, you know, LaSalle Parish, Louisiana. I have a heart there. You know, you might like grits and boudin and Cajun food and blackened catfish. I mean, this is your peeps. I have a heart for them. I'm from here. He says, my conscience testifies. But at the same time, my conscience also is connected to or united in or ruled by the Holy Spirit. As in, the Holy Spirit and my thinking and emotions have connected together that have produced something unhuman in me. Beyond the natural emotion of affection for other people. It's beyond what just Heath Harris can feel and the natural love that I would have even just towards my family. There's a by Jesus even says, you know, even enemies will do good for their own kind. Even wicked people will do good for their own kind. But Christians are called to raise the bar. And Paul says it's because my conscience testifies in, ruled by, under the connection with the Holy Spirit that something is going on. And what does he say? It says that this union with God... Or in the Spirit, it says, produce something. Don't you think about God and you think, man, when I get connected to God, I'm going to have joy and I'm going to have love. And, and man, I'm going to be excited and empowered. I'm a victor over sin. and I'm not going to cuss anymore and, and have those bad thoughts. And I'm not going to do those things. And it's just going to be this rosy, upbeat, positive. And what does Paul say? He says, when I get connected with God, man, you know, the Holy Spirit stuff, yeah, that happened in my life. I guess also something happened. I had unceasing grief. We don't preach that very much, do we? Ooh, we want God to be uh, the upper, not the downer. But Paul says, man, I had unceasing grief and sorrow in my heart that I was overcome with continuous pain and woe by the Holy Spirit for lost people. And he says, I could even wish. He's not saying that I do wish. He's saying if it were even possible. And he knows it's not because in the previous verses, he says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and our Lord Jesus, that nothing can separate us, even death itself. But he said, but if it were possible, I would wish myself to be accursed, uh, uh, anathema, accursed, that, that if it was possible, I would be cut off from the church all of my works would be for nothing. I'd give up every good thing I've ever done. My name could be run through the mud. I would take rejection by all men. But I'd even go further to say, I would be willing to be severed from Christ and go to hell if it meant I could save my people. That's pretty heavy stuff. You know, I, as a parent, I could probably say that about my girls, my daughters, my wife, my family. I could probably say that, you know, if it was between Ariana and her going to heaven or hell and dad could stand in the gap, I, it would be a tough decision because I, as a pastor, know what hell means. It means the weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity where flame and, and the rod of worm never die, that you are separated from Christ in eternal darkness with demonic torment for all eternity without any hope. Hope of ever finding one ounce 
of relief. Even a man in the Bible said, if I could just have one drop of water on my tongue, it would be enough. And it says, I would take that for a lost and dying generation. And I, as a parent, think, I think I would do that for my girls. I think I'd have to. But you probably get a couple minutes in hell and regret it, right? And even for my, and he's saying for strangers, for people I've never met, for people who deserve it because they killed their own Messiah, they rejected the prophets, they slandered, they're even persecuting me today and will kill me one day. But I would die for them. And look at what he says in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You know, Abraham did this one time. He interceded for a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story in, in, the, in Genesis. He interceded for a wicked place. God, if there's any righteous people, save it. If there's anybody who will believe in this town, God, save this town. I intercede. I stand in the gap for this town. Even Moses, when they made the golden calf, even he said, Lord, if you could, blot me out. Don't wipe this people out. God, don't kill all these people. You brought us in the, in the desert this far. Lord, if it, it comes to it and you're going to blot them out, Lord, blot me out with them. Moses prayed that prayer. He had a heart for the people that God called him to reach. And Paul, in this moment, has shared in God's good grief. You know, God grieves. God grieves. We don't think about that much in Scripture, but he does. Let me give you some uh, ideas here. God is grieved in Genesis 6 when the world became full of sin. It grieved the Lord. Isaiah 16 says that God weeps. When he sees suffering all over the world, God in heaven weeps over the suffering of the masses. Jeremiah 48 said that he even wept when he had to discipline his people and send them into exile. He, had, he wept. He's, he's a good father. He's got judgment and discipline and, and love. But he, when he even disciplines his own people, he weeps for them. He loves. And we know that God suffered. He wept. He grieved when he sent his only son to die on a cross. Now, the Bible says that because of that moment when his son finally was separated from him, that even the ground shook and the earthquake and it thundered and became dark across the land. Even graves are opened because God grieved. He was sorrow. And God grieves. There's only been a few times in my life, and I can actually count them even on one hand, where personally I have felt the Holy Spirit come over me. And the best way I can explain it is that he would cry uh, through me. There was a young man that I cared very much for as a friend, and, and uh, he shared his issues with me of where he was at in life and was pulling away this way and, and was really on the, on the direction, if he had not changed his course, would likely go to hell. And, and, and I don't know why I had uh, friends and other friends that were in of worse places than him, perhaps. But there was something that God put this young man on my heart so heavy above any other person in my life at that time that I could not help but go to God in prayer for hours for this young one man. For hours. I remember being as a college student on my bedroom floor, just weeping uncontrollably for his soul. 
It was as if the Holy Spirit was drawing me and pulling me to weep over me. I remember one moment where I was just on, I was praying a normal prayer, just praying before my day. And I was I just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, as if someone would just dump a bucket of water over you, that I just fell to my knees, began to sob, snot, weep uncontrollably, that my carpet was wet. Because God unloaded the burden of that young man's salvation onto my heart. I, ca- I felt the connection connection of God, that he loved this young man to the depths for his soul to be saved. There's been marriages I've counseled. I remember going through a, a there was a very messy divorce in our, in my friends and in our church and, and just all kinds of bad things happening. I remember just in the sanctuary, just weeping and weeping for this marriage to be saved. I, there have been moments in up in, in Missouri where we pastored, where we had been doing community outreach. And I remember, again, being walking around the sanctuary and just being overcome by just sorrow and emotion that I could not help but fall on my face uh, for the lost people in my community. And even yet here in Gina, Louisiana, just two years ago, God would do the same thing, that we should start a community alliance and, and birth common ground, is that God was saying, He, this is my heart for this place. There are lost people who are dying and going to hell, and I want to share my heart with you for a lost and dying generation. It's so easy as Americans that we can be so self-focused and so self-centered and make church about ourselves that we miss holding on and sharing in the heart of God. Paul says, I wish if I could that I would die because God has so shared his heart with me is as if not it's I don't even think it was Paul saying it. It was that God was saying, Paul, through you, I want you to know what I feel for lost people. And that's this, Paul. I would die for them. And Paul then felt that through God. And so Paul could say it with God. Because God said, Paul, I'm going to die for them. Paul wished that he could be accursed. But you know what? Paul didn't have to be accursed. Why? Because Galatians... Chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Christ then redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become himself a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul didn't have to be accursed. Why? Because Jesus Christ became the curse. He said, I wish I could be a curse, but I know I don't have to. Why? Because God himself became the curse. God himself was rejected, despised, forsaken among men, that he humbled himself and that became poor, obedient, sinful man, that he on himself, Peter said that he would bore in his body on the cross the sins of us all. Paul even would say in 2 Corinthians that he would even become sin for us that we might be healed and become the righteousness of God in Christ. And he says, it's cursed. He became our curse. He went down into the depths of hell on that day when he died on that cross. He went down into the grave. The sting of death came upon the Son of God. The beauty, the rose of Sharon was plucked out. And he went down into the pit and he took the shame and the suffering and the rejection and the ugly sin of us all. And he went down to it and he nailed it all to the cross. 
and he took it to the grave for you and for me. You don't know he was weeping on that day. And the Bible says in the garden, he wept to the point that blood. Don't you know the man in him and the God in him was united that such grief and sorrow for a lost and dying world manifested itself physically into sweat and tears of blood. God is looking for a church he can share his heart with. He's looking for a people that will not be self-absorbed in entertainment and hobbies and money and comfort and pleasure, but knows that my neighbor is dying and going to hell. My children are dying and going to hell. And God said, if you could just feel what my heart is for them. I took the curse. I took their curse. What kind of love is that? That a God would die for a world of unrighteous people. Paul even said in Romans 1, he said, you know what this world is like? Romans 1 verse 28, he said, guys, this world is full of people with depraved mind. They don't believe in God. They're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit. He just keeps going on. He says they got malice and gossip and slander. They hate the God that would die for them themselves. They were insolent, arrogant, boastful. They keep inventing more evil. They're dishonoring to their parents. They have no understanding of spiritual things. They're untrustworthy. They're unloving. They're unmerciful. And they're doing so many things worthy of death by God's law. And yet he became their curse. I have to ask myself this morning at my life and say, Heath, do you think you're more valuable than Jesus Christ? What do you mean by that, Pastor Heath? Well, Christ gave up his divine privilege. He gave up his position. He gave up his reputation. He gave up his goodness, his perfect unity. He gave up what he could be doing up in heaven. And I think, well, who am I to hold on to my life? If he would so willingly give up his life, who am I to hold on to mine? Do I think more highly of myself than the life of Jesus Christ? Do I think that my time is more valuable than his time? Do I think that my reputation is more valuable than his reputation? Do I think that my gifts and the things on my to-do list are more important than his to-do list? Because if I will not love the lost, if I will not love the lost, what does that say about what I think about his love? That he would give his love for the lost. What is my love to keep? Who am I to keep my love? If he would give his perfect love, what is my love that I should keep it? And if I will not die for them, do I not cheapen his death? For who am I to make my death about me? And if I will not give them my life, if I will not give the lost my life, what does that say about what I view his life? For his life was far more valuable than mine. How can I not give my life if God, who's had a greater life, who walked this earth sinless, who gave his beauty to a lost and dying world, how can I dare keep my life as a Christian for myself? Because his life is far greater than mine. So how can I not walk with him into death, walk with him into love, and walk with him into giving everything I have and follow him? And Jesus says, if you will not follow me, you are not worthy of me. If you will not die with me, you are not worthy of me. If you do not love me more than anything else in this world, you are not worthy of me. Why? Because it sets myself up as God. 
I think my life is most important. I have my plans. I have my dreams. I have my ambitions. I need to gain my money. I need to encourage uh, my hobbies and my entertainment. I need to involve my family in these events and these extracurricular activities. We don't have time to read our Bible or go to church or to pray or to witness to a lost and dying world. For why? My life is so much more important than what God says it is. My to-do list is so much more important than God's. Come on, let's be honest. Is that not true in the American world today? My life is so much more important than what God gave his son for. Do we not say that every time we miss church and don't witness and don't give and don't serve? We say my to-do list, church, is more important than what God gave his son to die for. I do not mean to be angry or mad. I want to speak the truth in love that there is a lost world dying and going to hell. And God wants to share his heart with us. Who will go down into the depths with Christ? Because God's grief is good grief. God's grief is good grief. You see, God's grief and Christ's curse leads me to my mission. You know, at Sanctuary, we are a blessed people. We have a, we have a good church, y'all. You guys have pastors who sub in the local schools to reach out to children. We've got pastors and volunteers and staff members who help lead parish-wide backpack giveaways to hundreds of students every year. We just took on the Christmas program for 300 children uh, in our community uh, for evangelism. We uh, promote and, and host school assemblies uh, uh, every year to anti-bullying and sex trafficking. We do that every year. We sponsored and started a Celebrate Recovery ministry. Some are here today, uh, lead that and are part of that. That's something that we have been a part of from the beginning. We've got many people in this room that cook suppers for students that don't have moms and dads that go to church. Every week, we, to dozens of students, we provide a free meal so they can come to church on an empty. We had students coming to church on Wednesday nights. They were coming hungry, and, and you guys said, let's, sort, let's feed them. Let's do that. We've got people who contribute annually to a single women's dinner for moms and widows that otherwise uh, may not have someone to care for them. We have those that go to the prisons and detention centers uh, on a weekly basis. And we've got an evangelism team that goes door to door uh, every month and shares the good news and the love of Jesus Christ and prays with people. And we, as as a family, support dozens of ministries around the world every month, Uh, going above and beyond our tithes and offering. We even have planted churches and built churches and schools around the world. But let me tell you something. We can do all of that. And like Israel, still fail to have the love of God. It's almost amazing, isn't it? Because look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Turn there with me real quick. Like Israel, we can do all manner of religious works, and Paul says, still not have God's burden for the loss. He says, if I can speak in tongues with the men, uh, tongues of men's and angel, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith, even as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And I can give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I can surrender even my body to be burned as a martyr. But if I do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
How can a person die at the stake? And how can a person give all their possessions to the poor? And how can a person speak in tongues and prophesy and have faith that sees mighty miracles? And he says, but if you don't have the love of God, if he hasn't shared his heart with you, if you don't have God's heart for this lost and dying world, for loving other people as you love yourself, if you would not die for a lost and generation, it is nothing. You could even give everything you have, even up your own life. But if you have not truly been birthed inside of you, the love of God, it's for nothing. Why? Because the love that Paul is talking about is what he said in Romans 9, that my conscience has been united with the Holy Spirit. It's not just a working of love of will. I can willingly, personally give to a charitable cause. I can willingly volunteer my time to be an usher, a greeter, or a kid's church worker, or sing a song on stage. I can willingly give my time to do all kinds. There are people who serve for the Salvation Army and the Peace Corps, and they do all sorts of things. There are people who will die for their country in the armed forces. And Paul says, you could do all these great manner of works, But if God's Holy Spirit has not united with you and caused you to be born again, to have a love that only God can give, it is just works of man. It's just good things and good deeds. But when God shares his burden with us for the lost, here's some things it does. It makes us more like him. It keeps me from being selfish, from being unforgiving, hypocritical. It saves me from the petty worries of this world. It keeps me on my knees in prayer. I want to give you three questions that you can take home with you today about our mission or my mission. The first is this. Who will love this community right here? Who will love? Who will love LaSalle Parish, Gina, Louisiana? Who will love Allah, Jonesville, Who will love Bela and Somerville and Aimwell? Who will love this parish more than the church that God has called to be here? It will not be churches in Africa. It will not be churches in Monroe. It will not be churches in Lafayette. It will not be churches in Texas. It will be the church that God has placed here. It has to be us. Who will love this community with a God-like love? And Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, that God is looking for the church of LaSalle Parish, Louisiana, to say, Lord, I want to be birthed in my heart the love of God for this people. It is our responsibility, church, that God has placed you here that you would ask God, Lord, we cannot do this without your love. God, we can't just serve and give our money and our time and burn ourselves out. Because let me tell you something. If you are doing things by your own flesh and by your own efforts and by your own willpower and by your own knowledge and by your own income and what you can budget, if you're doing it all by you, you will burn out, you'll give up, you'll, you'll take a back seat, you'll do all those things. But if you will do it through the passion and the power of the Holy Spirit working within you, it will not not be us, but it'll be him and he'll get the glory. And so Paul says, it's got to be because the Holy Spirit has poured out in my heart a love for this community. Let me tell you something. Let's be honest. I'm not from here. Pastor Christian is not from here. We should not love these people more than you. Can I be honest? If you've been born and raised here, you have your conscience 
And if you will unite it with the Spirit, man, what love you can have for this parish, for these people. And it's only because God has shared His heart with us that we are even here to love them. It has to be through the Holy Spirit who will love this community. Number two, hold stand in the gap between this community and an eternal hell. Paul said in Romans 10, verse 13, just the next chapter over, he says, Guys, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not up to you to save them. If they call upon Him, they'll be saved. But then how will they call if they've not believed? And how they'll believe if they don't have heard, have they have that heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. See, church, in this area, whether you believe this to be a very religious, understanding area, conservative, Baptist, United Pentecostal area, whatever you want to say this about our area, there is a door that's wide open for the gospel to be preached, that there are people in our backyard who are dying and going to hell. And he says, but how are they going to ever know unless you are making an appeal to God on their behalf? Who will stand in the gap? Who will intercede for those young people that don't have parents that don't go to church? Who's praying for those neighbors down the road from you who you know if they died today would go to hell? Who is standing in the gap but you and but me because there is no one left to make up the hedge, to stand in the wall like Nehemiah, put people in the gaps of the wall. There is nobody left but you and me, the church of God in this parish because who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to preach who is going to intercede? Who's going to make an appeal to God? And lastly is this. Who will die for this community? I often read Romans 12 probably in the wrong context. Because in this context it makes more sense to me. Because Paul would go on from what he said here in Romans 12 verse 1. He says, therefore, <laughs> I urge you by the mercy of God. Would you present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service. One translation says this is your reasonable act of service, your worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Guys, just like Israel thought of themselves so highly and thought that God's blessing was their for our own comfort and their own entertainment and their own pleasure and their own good standing, we can come into a church week by week and think that God is here to bless us and prosper us. And you can listen to TV evangelists all around the world that say that God is here to bless you and prosper you and make you something for yourself. But yet, let me tell you something, God is here to prosper a people who will make themselves living sacrifices and be full of the Holy Holy Spirit and give their life over to die for a lost and dying generation. He's looking for a church that says, God, you've given me gifts. You've given me gifts to build up your church. I can sing. I can play an instrument. I can, I'm friendly. I'm outgoing. Or, man, I can pray. Or I can give. I can and be charitable. I can serve. I can pick up the trash. Whatever it is, God, you've given me and the ability. I am using that for your glory. I'm a living sacrifice because let me ask you church how can i sit idly by if jesus has so freely given his everything how can i come and just take from his body 
and take from the church and not fulfill the great commission if Jesus has so freely given us all things? Who am I, Lord, not to serve? God, who am I, Lord, not to give? Who am I, Lord, not to speak your good words and your name, O God? Who am I to hold this truth for myself, God? He gave himself. God's grief is good grief. Verse 